Hi there, we've been away for a while, but we're back. Welcome to the latest thrilling episode of Two Parkers in a Pod. Two blokes with Parkinson's trying to live their best possible lives. Kewan, side of the tennis court. You've just beat me again three times on the spin. I'm gutted. It's three in a row for 2023. It's a good start to the year. But that, that was a tough game, I've got to say. I was uh, really struggling at the end. Uh, probably the m- most we've worked out for, for quite some time, right? Yeah, I'm feeling good after it, though. Yeah, I started really slowly and then... Uh, you were 5-2 up, Daddy Love up, and I thought uh, that's the end of it, and then I managed to pull it back. How did you find that? I got a bit looser as the, as the game went on. I think my medication started kicking in, and I started really slowly and quite rigid. And uh, there's something about tennis and the range of movement. Like, you know, Brady Kinesia is about slow movement. It's also about the range of movement. And I noticed when I was trying to serve early on, I wasn't getting that range of motion that you need for an overhead serve. So, and I realised that that got a bit better throughout the game um, as the medicine was kicking in. So, just another way that this condition affects <laughs> affects us. You didn't tell me you were drugs cheap. That's, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, you've been, we've been away for a while. Um, your ever-growing fan club has missed you. Where have you been? I've been in Asia. We, we sort of saved up and went away for five weeks and uh, missed the cold spell because I'm really struggling in the, in the cold. And um, went over to Thailand and Singapore. Uh, had a great time. Had... Uh, Healthy living, good food, healthy food. Went to the gym quite a bit, uh, got got some sun and um, my parents came along as well and it was a nice family holiday. And it's away as well. Went to Florida, to Tampa, to see my hero Bruce Springsteen. Bruce. The optimistic energy of Bruce. Fantastic. Yeah. It was the, the, the opening show of his world tour. Two hours, 45 minutes, yeah. 28 songs. I felt like a newborn man afterwards. Yeah, Fantastic. And it was, it's the first of a few uh, few trips to see Bruce this yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. I'm off to right? Dublin next, so that should be good. Excellent. Looking forward to meeting a few people out there. Um, today, you've decided we need a bit of therapy. So we're off to see a therapist at Queen Square again. We are, yeah. Dr. Jennifer Foley, who's a neuropsychologist, uh, is going to talk to us all about mental health and uh, touch on some of the non-motor symptoms of, of Parkinson's, of, of which there are many. You've had a bit of psychological care over the, over the years haven't you I have yeah I've had, I've had access to uh, a neuropsychologist and a counsellor only last couple of years really uh, but Has it helped I found it's really helped yeah I find like uh, just you know whoever you are and whatever you're doing just talking about things just just helps generally but I think particularly sort of dealing with Parkinson's and, and living with a neurodegenerative condition like this you know we, we need all the help that we can get so um yeah, I'd recommend it to, to anybody. Well, the doctor's a senior clinical neuropsychologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. You can hear from her now. Dr Jennifer Foley, welcome. You're... Oh, did I get Let's go start. You scared it. Dr Jennifer Foley, neuropsychologist, welcome to Two Parkers in a Pod. Thank you. Just tell us about your role here at Queen's Square. What, what do you actually do here? Um, so I'm a clinical neuro- neuropsychologist, which means um, that I see people with neurological conditions and I have a variety of different roles. So I see people for memory assessments. So I try to sort of help um, the doctors understand whether there's been any changes in thinking skills. Um, so memory, concentration, those sorts of things. And then also I see um, people for mood assessments where I try to work out if they're going through a difficult time emotionally related to the neurological condition and then what, what we can do to help with that. What attracted you to neuropsychology then? Um, so it's just a really fascinating aspect of, um, 
of psychology, of clinical psychology. So in clinical psychology, when you train, you do bits of everything. You do sort of working with children, working with older people, working with people with learning disabilities. But neuropsychology of understanding how the brain changes and how that impacts upon um, thinking skills and emotions, I just found just what could be more fascinating. And um, to neuropsychology... There's also psychiatry. There's also counselling. Yeah. How do how do all these things differ? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so psychiatrists are the ones who are tasked with understanding medications and sort of um, providing medications for mental health problems. Um, whereas a psychologist would be more a talking therapies specialist. And so, um, in clinical psychology training, you have to train in a number of different um, therapeutic modalities. So. Cognitive behavioural therapy, perhaps, was one of them. Um, maybe another type of um, therapy, such as um, acceptance and commitment therapy. Whereas counselling would be tend to focus on one type of counselling, and they w- it's a different sort of training. It's a long training as well, but it's just a different sort of training. I should just say, for full disclosure, I'm, I'm a patient of yours as well, <laughs> and uh, I was referred to you via uh, my neurologist, um, and is that the conventional route to get yeah. referred? Yeah. Through the neurologist or through um, a Parkinson's nurse, they, that would be the way that people would tend to reach me. I've got to say, I, it was a very long referral process. I think I, I waited over a year or so. Oh, really? I think that's probably just a reflection of the fact that there's, there's so many of us and so few of you. Was that during the pandemic? That was during the pandemic, which yeah. obviously exacerbated things. Yeah. But, uh, it shouldn't be that long. It should only be like a maximum of three months. Okay. Well, yeah. that's encouraging. I do get the feeling that there's, there's a lot of people in the Parkinson's population don't avail themselves of services like this. Is, yeah. is that what you find as well? Yeah. I mean, not everyone will have to, you know, be seen by a neuropsychologist um, throughout their Parkinson's. You know, it's only when it, it's thought to be useful that we would ask people to see a neuropsychologist that the, the doctor or the nurse would, would yeah. ask that. I, I think it's not always obvious that it, it can be useful. You, you, you don't have access to a service like this, do you, Dave? No, I don't, but uh, I'd like it. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> it it took, took me two years to get my head around Parkinson's, you know, two, two and a half years. Is that, is that quite normal? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, I don't know if there is a an end point of getting your head around Parkinson's, but, you know, certainly that initial process of just coming to terms with you know what it's all about and having to take medications and you know the impact that it has on your life you know no cure as well yeah all those sorts of things you know it just takes quite a while to sort of process that and to sort of adjust to that first stage of having a diagnosis I for sure. say, two, two years you're doing quite well it's the yeah. best part of a decade and, and i'm still going like <laughs> like you're like you're implying i always talk about um, the grieving process when mm. you when you're diagnosed with a condition like this and you know, we haven't lost someone, but we've lost something, and there are various stages you go through to get to acceptance. And um, you know, like we're alluding to, acceptance is just not one final destination you reach that you stay there. It's uh, it's different every day. That's the nature of the condition, and that kind of plays with your emotions somewhat. Oh, that's so right. Yeah, I mean, that's what I hear from a lot of people is that it's a sort of cycle of adjustment, so that you you might adjust to initial. F- initial sort of diagnosis perhaps having to take medication perhaps the lifestyle changes and then you know maybe you'll sort of toodle on okay and then the next sort of change in maybe another symptom arises and then you have to sort of adjust to that and so it's just like this continuous process of adjustment it'll almost be easier if just things was constant right yeah the fact that it's a progressive condition means you you go through stages uh both sort of physically and emotionally i think that's you know, as, as somebody with a condition, we have to continually adjust ourselves to each of those stages. What, what are the most 
common psychological problems with with Parkinson's? So the most common ones are things like anxiety. So a lot of people tend to be worriers, and so it's a sort of general anxiety that sort of just sort of impacts everything, that they just worry about everything. Whereas... um, panic attacks um, tend to be a bit less common depression or low mood um, is fairly common but that tends to come along with the anxiety so people tend to have anxiety and then a little bit of low mood on top Um, and uh, we also know about you know impulse control problems so they can be quite common in in people um, so that's the sort of um, gambling or increased sex drive or spending more money Um, and there are the sort of uh, impact upon concentration and memory skills in some people, not everyone, but um, some people, you know, throughout the course of the condition will develop some problems there, so that's why they might come and see a psychologist as well. You mentioned compulsive behaviour. How do you know when, you, when, when something's normal and something's compulsive? Yeah, right. And I think when you're in the eye of the storm, you don't know. So it just feels like this feels great, you know, this this is a great way to be and you don't necessarily reflect gosh this isn't this isn't right so that's why the doctors are really keen to sort of make it clear that there are side effects to some of these medications and that um these um and and that you that you have to have an open relationship with your doctor and your nurse about any changes in your behavior and that you and if you have a partner or a friend that you know can sort of help you recognize any changes yeah, sometimes it's not always obvious. Sometimes it needs that the partner or somebody else to actually well, mate, make. Today you're taking yeah, nine thousand yeah. photos in a week. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just—I was just going to say cause that, that's my particular vice, if I can say it like that. My, my particular compulsion. I introduced Dave to a new word the other day, uh, which I'm pretty sure is is unique to Parkinson's. Uh, punding. Yeah. Uh, which I didn't know before until. Um, I was listening to um, Larry's podcast, uh, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a great podcast if you haven't heard it, and he had Muhammad Ali's daughter on there, and she was describing how um, the great man, he used to have this habit of flicking through magazines and and cutting out photos that he liked and sort of collecting them, and uh, it was quite interesting because she noticed the the behaviour, and I think in the end they concluded it's it's okay because it's almost like a form of therapy. There's a bit of a fine line, particularly when it comes to the the creative side, I, I find, of something being a, a compulsion and a, and a negative but also being it can be a positive I, I you joke I take so many photos but I actually get a lot of joy out of it and, I, and, I, and it's, a, as a, it's a hobby for me and uh, I find my, my you know my mood is a lot better as, as a result yeah I've had a lot of people that have got really into card making um, and you know just at one point we ran a group and I think everyone in the group had just got into card making and um so it's really common that sort of punding, and I think you know for the for the majority of folk who who are doing that, it just feels fine. It feels like a creative outlet. They they suddenly feel like they're on top of their game. But for other people, it can start to feel compulsive. Even the punding. So I had someone that was finding themselves sort of gardening in the middle of the night because they just couldn't stop. Yeah. Mm. And so it's when it sort of top, top topples over into actually being not enjoyable. I think it's when you know. Yeah, do to do something about and potentially it. even more severe than that. You know, that so, so some of the uh, some some of the other types of compulsive behaviours that you mentioned, like gambling and uh, hypersexuality, it can lead to problems in in relationships. And I, yeah. I've noticed, and I don't think it's a coincidence, there's the amount of people that, uh, with Parkinson's that have ended up in broken relationships as as a result of that. Yeah, I think you know, there's a lot of reasons why relationships can break down when there's the stress of you know living with a and a long-term condition but you know particularly the impulsivity can 
can just create such havoc in relationships when it's when it's um, hypersexuality particularly it can I mean I've seen some couples that have managed through losing an incredible amount of money and you know are still together and it's, yeah. I just find that you know awesome but the hypersexuality if there's any problems there beforehand particularly in sexual relationship that can it can be it can really eviscerate the relationship yeah. and so people can feel really um destroyed um by it and, and do you find that um, because you know obviously we're talking of things of a very personal nature that people are somewhat reluctant to talk about it openly yeah i mean I, i'm always surprised at how open people are about it you know i just have to ask the question and then you know um and people will t- generally tell me and i think maybe it's partly because they're so used to being asked you know it's not like asking just someone on the street oh, if you notice any changes in your sex drive you know it's like these people with parkinson's who are on these medications are asked about these side effects so much that they get a bit used to it but um some people can feel a bit emb- i think it's usually the partner of the person with hypersexuality that feels embarrassed whereas them themselves not not so much i have noticed yeah i'd just like to go back to the the anxiety theme um, when i when i was first diagnosed uh, i i thought it was my tremor that was my first symptom or at least that's what triggered me to go and see uh, a doctor and find out what's going on but looking back now actually i'm pretty sure things like anxiety and mood fluctuations were something i've, I've suffered from since since an early age and I'm pretty sure uh, are, are related to, to my Parkinson's, and I believe that's the case. A lot of these non-motor symptoms often are surfaced before the, the physical symptoms. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. There's there was a, a neat study here done by Annette Schrag, um where she found that she looked back at GP records of people before they had had their diagnosis of Parkinson's, and a lot of the things that people were going to the doctor about were these basically non-motor symptoms as well as some of the motor symptoms that were just not recognized but um but certainly sort of anxiety or low mood in the couple of years perhaps preceding diagnosis or when the first sort of motor symptom you know declares itself it was very common it's funny because depression and anxiety can be can be more disabling than the parkinson's symptoms itself you know the yeah. motor symptoms yeah, I've had some patients tell me that actually it's it's those things that are the, the hardest to live with than it is the motor symptoms. And often it's those symptoms that get the least amount of attention, you know, in the clinic. So, um, and, and the least well understood by society. And and so, you know, that's what we and I've been working with Parkers UK to try to sort of change that a bit, to try to emphasise the importance of psychology and the importance of understanding the impact of these symptoms and how they might um, impact the motor symptoms as well. So it's not just that anxiety or low mood or these sorts of symptoms are damaging in themselves, they are, but it's also that they have this sort of exacerbating of impact upon motor symptoms. Hallucinations is also a problem, isn't it, with Parkinson's? Yeah, I mean, and they can occur for different reasons, right? So they can occur as you know side effects of medications, or um, uh, or because you're progressed and starting to develop them. And often, you know, they're not they're not troublesome, they're not worrisome, and so you know you don't need to worry or do much about them. But but some people do have very distressing hallucinations, particularly in you know when they've had it for years and years. And for that, then, yeah, you have to do a sort of proper um, assessment of what, what's causing them and, um, and then a treatment to try to reduce, 
reduce the distress associated with them. Yeah, sometimes it's very difficult to decipher what is caused by the condition, what is a side effect of the medication, and what is it what is caused by something else. Yeah. And that's a very difficult uh, distinction to make. Just going back to that thing about anxiety in Parkinson's and anxiety and depression in Parkinson's and how it's framed in in a wider context. I think part of the problem is that there is a view that that anxiety and depression is as a result of having to deal with the diagnosis of of, of Parkinson's, mm. which is obviously obviously the case. You know, you, you're knocked over when you get this diagnosis. But I think more fundamentally, there needs to be recognition that things like this are actually inherent to the condition itself in, in the way that dopamine not only controls my movement, but it's actually controlling my mood and motivation, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would agree, but I would also say that it's not necessarily the case that everyone would get anxiety or depression so there has to be something about the individual's circumstances or maybe the biology that somehow either makes it more likely or less likely and that's why it's you know these sorts of research studies to try to figure out what the link is would be really really useful because it might be that you know certain subtypes of Parkinson's will be more likely to have that type of um, anxiety or low mood driven um, uh, phenomenology. How do, how do you stop it? How, how can you get away from anxiety and depression? Is, is there a simple fix? Is there something you can do? Get your uh, mojo back? <laughs> yeah. So um, there's a... I, I find that, you know, what's really important is um, to focus on three things. One of them is exercise um, and doing as much exercise, hot and sweaty exercise as possible. Um, really, re- I find has you know, it has significant improvements in mood for people. Um, and also, you know, it's like such so great for the for delaying the progression of the motor symptoms. So it's a bit of a no brainer to try to get that, you know, up and running as much as possible. But then on top of that, it's sort of it's having um, someone to talk to about um, about what it's life like for you, what it's like to be living with the symptoms and the distress and um, that it causes. So it's the sort of uh, exercise, uh, the social, but it's also um being busy and doing things so sometimes I'll speak to people that they don't have a lot going on and so it's kind of it's no wonder that you know they're sort of imprisoned by their motor symptoms not really able to do much I think it would be a a rare person indeed that doesn't get low or anxious in those sorts of situations it's a very slippery slope isn't it Um, because often um, people retire early from, from work as a result of the condition and they're left with sort of nothing in terms of their focus. And it's very important to sort of not only keep the body active uh, with this condition, but to keep the mind active as well. Yeah, I mean, you guys are young, but for, for people who are over... Do you hear that, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> for people, you know, who are sort of at retirement age anyway, you know, might have retired, might have, um, you know, lost all their social connections and their their sort of engagement with life from retiring from work and then on you know and then on top of that have to deal with this diagnosis and sometimes it can you know what what is what is conflated so people might think they feel anxious because or low because they've got parkinson's but actually it's all that other stuff about the loss of social or engagement you know is actually what's driving quite a lot of the changes in mood even meeting your mates is, is a great thing you know if people don't ring you you've got to ring them you, yeah. you can't be isolated it's all right to be on the sofa day but you don't make a habit of it you know get out get up 
have, a, have a great time. Yeah, absolutely. It's about keeping keeping engaged. I think a lot of people can feel embarrassed. You know, I've had some people say that they're too embarrassed to go to the pub with their friends because you know they'll shake with the pint or they don't use a straw. These sorts of things. It's an excuse not to go to the bar. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and but you know, I think you lose so much more than you know your pride yeah, by not you, going. You do yeah. I mean, we're both guilty of this. Uh, I mean, I, I I didn't really share my diagnosis for for, for many years and uh, precisely for that reason embarrassment and uh, that that's that's very common i just want to read out some stats from a parkinson's uk survey which puts this in into context that uh, they surveyed about uh, 800 people in 2017 and uh, these are the headlines 70 percent of respondents i.e people with parkinson's say their mental health has affected their ability to socialize 50 percent found it more challenging to leave the house uh, 50% also found uh, their close relationships have been negatively impacted. 27% reported suicidal thoughts. Mm. I mean, that's the thing, the thing that somewhat annoys me about this condition. It, it gets communicated as a movement disorder. Mm. But if you, if, if you listen to those stats, actually often it's the stuff that's not to do with movement. Uh, the stuff often that's invisible, others can't see it. And often stuff that's less talked about that impacts people's quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. It's those sort of intangible aspects of Parkinson's that are actually driving quite a lot of this distress. Yeah. I think getting out in nature is a good thing as well. Every day I get up, my, my wife got me a dog, Ruby my dog, and it's brilliant because I, I meet people with Ruby, you know, she goes up to people, I chat to people, I talk about my Parkinson's, it's, it's, it's great. I get out in nature every morning, I'm up at eight o'clock, out, out with the dog, and it's, it's, it's been fantastic for me, just socially and, 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 and someone to, you know, who loves you, brilliant. Yeah, and, and and you're great at connecting with people and reaching out and ca- calling out people and um, which which is great because you do get into this sort of isolation mode when when you have this condition and it's a, it, you know it's a, it's a vicious circle because I find myself what, what I found myself early on when when I was by myself I was spending a lot more time at home sat on the sofa that means I'm doing less exercise I'm meeting people less g- getting less fresh air my sleep suffered as a result I would eat poorly you know all these things are are connected so you know having that kind of approach and it, it is it is a challenge but if you can reach out it makes such a big difference because social connection is so important well you sought me out online didn't you found me online we yeah. were in the same Actually, bit of time she, she was asking me yesterday <laughs> how, how we know each other and i, and I said uh, stalk me i stalked you yeah <laughs> I, I i i i saw you uh, on um oh, i think it was on instagram and uh, i was saying to helen oh that's dave clark he used to be on sky sports i remember him and, and I kind of worked out, um, and this was a bit of stalking, I kind of worked out, you, you lived in the same part of London as I do. And uh, so I thought, oh, let me send him a message. So I, I sent him a message that said uh, something along the lines of, hey, Dave, uh, you don't know me, but uh, we seem to have a few things in common. We have a, a passion for sport. We like the beer. And, uh, you know, we've got this other thing in common, little, little old Parkinson's. Uh, do you fancy meeting up and comparing notes? And, uh, and we did. And uh, when we did meet up, uh, it was great, you know, because there is something about, meeting others with this condition that's really quite powerful because as much as I can have this conversation with a with a non-parkey and as much reward I get from their sympathy if, if you like nothing beats empathy you know nothing beats the fact that I can talk to Dave or even talk to you as a professional in this area and you just get it you know that it's very frustrating for people with this condition to explain things because it's such a complex thing and it's very difficult to get across sometimes i wish i wouldn't wish this condition on anybody but rather than explaining it if somebody could live in my shoes just for a day just to appreciate the enormity of it, it it's a it's a huge thing what 
what I hear from nearly everyone I speak to about sort of Parkinson's groups or Parkinson's things is that they don't want to see someone that's worse off than themselves. And I hear that from people, even if they've got the most severe movement disorder I've ever seen, versus like someone who looks completely like um, without any tremor or anything. So how did you, how did you overcome that fear? Well, that's an interesting question, actually, because Dave and I had a very similar experience because early on I I went to one of these uh, support groups and um, I I faced exactly that challenge. I I saw people that were firstly a lot older than me, uh, which is fine. It's just from a a lifestyle point of view and from a disease progression point of view, I was in a completely different stage, Mm. so I I couldn't relate. And I found it quite daunting because, you know, I was seeing people with more advanced symptoms than me and it and it put me off. And I as a result, I actually disconnected fr- from the community um, and I went out of my way not to engage with other people with with the condition uh, f- for, for many years. It was only sort of until I started reaching out and, and probably that that process I described with connecting with Dave was probably my introduction and part of my coming out process, uh, which I've got Dave to thank for it. But you, you had a similar experience, didn't you, Dave? Uh, yeah, I went to a to a, a, a young Parkinson's group, and I just found it really hard. You know, the, mm. probably fifteen people there, and ten of them were in a quite bad state. And I didn't think I didn't think I was ready for that. You know, mm. was, I was meeting in the church hall every week, and thought, no, this isn't for me. So mm. I, I, I tend to surround myself with positive people. You know, um, a lot of people with Parkinson's moan about things, and you know, re- they're really really down and need help. So I, I've got about five or six people I counsel every week, just chat to people on the phone. Just try and give it a bit of positive energy. Mm. And that really works, you know. So uh. I think social media has changed things as well. Because when you and I di- were diagnosed, social media wasn't really a thing. Yeah. And now the good and bad of social media has is, is, is impacted Parkinson's as well. Because it brought people a lot closer together. But I say good and bad because I, I think some people use it as an outlet where perhaps they should be using more conventional talking therapies mm. rather than trying to sort of use twitter as therapy or facebook or whatever it is do you have a, any any views on how how social media interaction could affect somebody with parkinson's yeah i mean i've had some patients tell me that they when they only put their sort of best selves on social media so it's a sort of um you know they feel like they're masquerading as someone that they're not and then that sort of puts a lot of pressure on them to keep that up you know and when they're living with Parkinson's and it gets harder um so I think you know for for, as you say for for some people they use it as a sort of um emotion dump I suppose um whereas other people you know find that it, it actually stops them from being able to express any emotions so I suppose it's different things for different people yeah I'm also aware that you know the whole premise of social media is it, it plays on that dopamine thing, doesn't it? Mm. It's all about that reward. You know, people are chasing the likes, the follows, the views, whatever it is. And I think, you know, we t- talked about compulsion earlier. I, I, I think there's a there's a social media compulsion um, that some people with Parkinson's have. And it's it's not always a, it's a healthy thing to do. I mean, I wonder if most of the sort of nation has that compulsion. Yeah, that's 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 true, but I think if you're if you're either predisposed to yeah. compulsion or you're taking medication that can exacerbate it, I think it's just good to be aware aware of it. You know, like I said, social media can be a good thing. You know, Dave and I wouldn't have found each other if, if it wasn't oh, for it. Oh. <laughs> the 
bromance. It was really funny, but when, when I when, when I mentioned to Helen, I was like, "Oh, he's replied, he's replied." And then I, we went out for a beer, and uh, it was almost like a first date, you know. And it was like when I got back, and she was like, "How was it? How was it?" I was like, "Yeah, he was a really nice guy, you know. I think he liked me, you know." <laughs> then he sent me a message saying, "Oh, thanks for a, for a great night," and I was like really chuffed. I was telling her, and she was. I don't know if she was jealous or not, but uh, no, but she did recognise actually, and she does recognise that as supportive as she is, you know, there's no substitute for having somebody else that's literally living in your shoes. Mm, mm. Talking about uh, um, therapies and things, um, cognitive behavioural therapy, um, CBT, a lot of people recommend that in in Parkinson's. Could you just explain what it is and how it works? Yeah, so... um Cognitive behavioural therapy is the sort of mainstream therapy delivered by the NHS. It's the one that has the most evidence base for it. Um, And it's focused on problems. Um, So rather than sort of going back into your childhood and sort of, you know, lying on the couch in a sort of Freudian way, it's more sort of focused on what's the problem in the here and now and what can we do um, to to fix it. So it looks at your cognitions associated with whatever the problem is. These are your thoughts, the sort of automatic thoughts that go through your mind. Um, It looks at your behaviour, so what you do um, in in a problematic situation what you're doing that might be hindering yourself and then so it's just about sort of trying to help people see the sort of um, mesh that surrounds their problem and tries to break break that down a bit but doesn't really look at the root problems of the the root reasons for the problems you know um, like the sort of problems in the past that might have might have caused it how many sessions would you need of that so it depends you know for, for the NHS tends to deliver six sessions, so um, um, six to eight sessions. So IAPT, which is um, around uh, England and Wales, I, I think it's Wales as well, which is increasing access to psychological therapies. Um, and that's they have um, they're the people that deliver psychological therapies to the bulk of the nation, irrespective of whether you have Parkinson's or not, and. Um, they deliver cognitive behavioural therapy, I think, in six sessions. And so if you're, if you're not sort of fixed within those six sessions, people can feel a bit sort of um, uh, left behind. But sometimes, you know, there can be alternative therapies available after that. It's just that they want you to do the sort of cognitive behavioural therapy first. What would it be like if I came to see you for CBT, then would have to lie, lie down on a chaise long and... <laughs> <laughs> tell you all the problems what would happen of, of course that would be essential <laughs> um, uh, so in cognitive behavioural therapy we tend to have an, an initial appointment where you sort of just talk about what the problem is what's 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 been keeping it going and then you might be doing um, uh, over the over the number of sessions you'll be doing homework it's quite a lot of homework that you have to do in between the sessions so I think a lot of people think that sort of talking therapies is um is easy like it's an easy way out you know and it's it's just chatting to someone but it's actually it can be very hard work because you have to you have to really sort of test yourself to 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 behave in new ways that might be a bit frightening and you have to sort of do quite a lot of homework and sort of um you know in terms of doing these sorts of experiments to see if you can cope in these situations by and develop new coping skills so maybe you'd be learning relaxation um, or meditation or something like this yeah, I was going to say. I think I think a lot of people sort of find the whole concept quite quite daunting. And um, when we were talking yesterday in our session, the thing that struck me was just you know it was just like an everyday conversation with somebody who who was perhaps you know more informed about the condition than than the, than the layperson. But it was just it wasn't too dissimilar to the conversation that we're having now. So I don't think people need to feel 
daunted in any way? No, I mean, I'm not particularly um, wedded to the CBT model. So in in my work, what I'm tending to do is just trying to find out where that person is in terms of what the difficulty is and what what sort of support they need. And um, so I won't, you know, that sort of conversation can be a bit more... um, open I suppose whereas a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy approaches will be quite sort of driven towards a particular goal yeah I I, I, I did CBT um, uh, uh, early on and I found it too generic in the sense that it wasn't you know I wanted a Parkinson's version of it mm. or a neuro version of it and I find this in a lot of disciplines that there is a difference between a say for example a, a physiotherapist and a neurophysiotherapist who is a specialist in in Parkinson's, same with occupational therapy, same in a lot of disciplines, and I, I, th- I think I'd, I'd count your yours your discipline in that as well. Yeah, I, I mean, so what? There's a couple of things that we're doing um, in order to address that because there aren't enough neuropsychologists. Mm. You know, it's like hardly any of us, and um, and so one of the things that we're doing is we've been working with IAPT. This is the increasing access to psychological therapies people in NHS England to try to get them to expand what they do to incorporate understanding about Parkinson's so rather than having millions of neuropsychologists which is not going to be feasible um, maybe skilling people up more about Parkinson's Mm. who are sort of these sort of um, generic therapists and so myself and one of the neuropsychiatrists from this hospital um, sort of been helping NHS England with that and then and I think Neurological Alliance are going to take that forward so Mm. it'll be for all neurological conditions and then the idea would be that they would have condition specific sort of guidance Mm. Um, and another thing is that we're doing a study here um, on um, uh, providing groups um, manualized groups so a bit like a CBT model where you there's like um, a certain number of sessions it's it's set at the beginning but it'll be within a group format and we'll have one for newly diagnosed people one for people who are struggling with anxiety and depression and one for advanced parkinson's with cognitive changes thinking changes and the idea is that if it works if it actually if it's useful to people with parkinson's if, if they like it then and if it's sort of cost effective for the nhs to deliver then we'll we'll release it across the uk yeah, I find this fascinating because it really the driver is cost. You know, there's aging population. Well, over and above that, the Parkinson's population is increasing and resources are even more constrained. So, you know, in a way, that's kind of good because it drives innovation in care. Uh, but a lot of it actually then comes down to enabling the individual in terms of self-care. Because quite frankly, you know, I might see you a total for an hour a year. But that's it. You know, the rest of the time I'm, I'm left to my own devices. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it is sort of cost. And the NHS traditionally is more of a crisis management rather than um, preventative model. And I think, you know, the bulk of the costs for people with Parkinson's tends to come from unplanned hospital admissions or so emergency hospital admissions. So maybe, you know, your symptoms are playing up so badly that, you know, you can't walk or um, you're having lots of falls or um, you're becoming really confused or something and, or hallucinating on some new drugs. And all that might create a sudden urgency to be admitted. And, um, and that is what I think actually costs the NHS the most. So I th- what we've been working with um, or working on with colleagues at Parkinson's UK is well let's see if we can actually identify what the major drivers are for those sorts of unplanned admissions to see if we can maybe think about well what's 
is there a better way of um, optimising outpatient care so that those admissions wouldn't happen? And so you'd be saving money from the admissions, which are really expensive, by and put more money into outpatient care, just routine outpatient care. And this is through your your role in the Parkinson's UK mental health hub, is that? Is that right? Yeah, I, it's um, that's how we started it, and um, I've been working um with some colleagues at Parkinson's UK, but it's through UCL now um, that we're doing it. Yeah, so... Just just changing tack a little bit now, just going back to the symptoms. Uh, can we talk about apathy a little bit? Because it's something that Dave and I both suffer from. I think most people with Parkinson's do. Um, firstly, what is apathy? Yeah, so apathy is the loss of motivation. So it's um, it's not not being able to do something. It's, it's the loss of a drive to want to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's often conflated with low mood or anxiety and we did a big study here um, at Queen Square where we looked at how many people with um, apathy also and Parkinson's also had anxiety and depression and like the the majority of them also had anxiety or depression and anxiety doesn't tend to be featured when they think about apathy we tend to think of apathy as a sort of low mood response but actually if you're anxious you might just not want to engage in anything so you still have that loss of drive to do things the other symptom that I relate apathy to in terms of them going hand in hand is fatigue yeah fatigue um, any one of these symptoms individually, you know, can knock you for six. But when they all come together, as they often do in Parkinson's, and particularly things like fatigue and apathy, it's as well as the mood fluctuations and you know the rigidity and all the other motor symptoms. Collectively, it's it's like a weight that bears down on you. You know, it kind of sort of stops you sort of getting up and getting out, which is what you should be doing. Yeah, and it's really hard to remain positive when you've got that going on, right? I think, you know, the fatigue is really hard because, and that can be for a number of different reasons. You know, it can just be from the Parkinson's itself or it can be, um, so it can be like a a physical fatigue, it can be a cognitive fatigue, you know, where people just find it really hard to focus. Um, It can also be because you're not sleeping very well or perhaps your, your eating is dysregulated because you're having to manage it, you're managing your protein intake around your medication. So there's lots of different reasons that, can create that fatigue um and then uh, you know um the fatigue can then be mistaken for apathy but it's not necessarily um an apathy problem or process per se it's more of a um i'm too tired to do it well i'm just going to say i think the confusion in terms of language i find often people talk about tiredness when they actually mean fatigue Mm. nobody says i'm fatigued Uh, (laughs) helen always used i always used to say say to helen i'm really tired I'm just so tired. And she's like, well, you're not sleeping well. Or maybe you need to take some more rest and so on. Fatigue and tiredness are different. And the the way I, and I don't know if this is correct interpretation or not, but the way I distinguish the two is tiredness is something I can treat via rest or sleep. Fatigue is not the same. Often, in my case anyway, rest is almost the worst thing. Inactivity is the worst thing. What, What alleviates my fatigue is actually being active. Yeah. I think, you know, if you're waking up and you're not feeling refreshed, if you're still feeling like that weight on you, then, you know, we could probably think of that as fatigue rather than, you know, a tiredness. But I think you're right. It's the exercise. It's the sort of getting out and actually um, trying to be more motivated to do things and to, to, to sort of get your heart rate up and to... I think that does help with fatigue in, a, in an enormous way. What's tough is the combination of all the above, isn't it? Because you, you don't get a good night's sleep. You, you wake up in the night, you're anxious about ridiculous things. 
that you, you shouldn't be thinking about. And then you wake up tired, you're fatigued for the rest of the day, and it, it's just a cycle you can get in if you're not careful. Yeah, it's a perfect storm, right? But I think, you know, the, 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 the thing to, that really sort of improves it, as, as we've been saying, is just having an, an exercise routine. And I would say routine is probably the best thing as opposed to just exercise when and when when and where but because the more you have a routine the more you just sort of do things without thinking you have to obviously gear it around your symptoms like if you have on-off fluctuations or whatever you have to make sure that you do it at the times where you're most likely to be able to so you know organize your um your hot and sweaty exercise for when you're feeling most able and then you know maybe think about exercise that's quite calming or relaxing for when you're feeling less able um, but just trying to get involved in as much exercise and having a nice routine um, set up in order to enable you to do that is really key we do a wednesday yoga class parky yoga online which is great meditation all that fantastic yeah i was was, was actually gonna say the only thing better than exercise i find is group exercise because you know you 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 kill two birds with one stone you get the 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 physical exercise and the benefits from that but you also get the social interaction part of the reason that we we like that sort of class and i I do a separate exercise group as well is well the class will last about an hour or so but the first 15 minutes we're just having a natter aren't we we're just having a chat and that interaction you know is invaluable yeah i think you're absolutely right you know i really try to encourage people to go to Parkinson's groups for um, exercise and there's loads that are geared up for sort of the hot and sweaty exercise as well it's not just like yoga or pilates you know and a lot of those are being run around the country now by physiotherapists and it doesn't really matter what it's called you know Mm. whether it's PD warrior or whatever you know there are lots of different versions of this nowadays that are are accessible to people and I think Mm. they're really great for maintaining motivation and um, uh, self-management elements of competition is good as well we play tennis regularly <laughs> and, and you know we, we, it's the big thing who wins the tennis and I, I recently broke my finger playing in goal for the <laughs> Parkinson's football team and uh, you know all, all these parkies get together from all over the country play fo- fo- walking football it's brilliant yeah and uh, walking tennis yeah. as well yeah it's like uh, walking netball yeah I mean I, my best days are the days that I do exercise and particularly if I do it in a, in a group or uh, with a with a buddy, I think everybody needs a buddy when when you have this condition. Uh, just just you motivate each other and, and things become a lot easier. There's one thing you mentioned to me yesterday in our session. Um, it's about writing down thoughts, mm. you know, particularly when you're feeling anxious or you know you're having an off period or a, a bad day. Getting your thoughts out there um, in in that sort of form actually c- can be really a healthy discipline, right? Not necessarily putting it onto social media, as you were saying <laughs> before. But yeah, definitely, you know, like uh, if people are struggling maybe with worry, if you think about, you know, the sort of characteristic waking up in the night worrying, what happens is that those those thoughts are just stuck on the inside of your head and they're wishing around. They're not really proper thoughts. They're just sort of like mm. anxious emotions that are that are just sort of percolating yeah and then you know words or images will become connected to it and so i think if there's some way of um actually verbalizing it to actually transform it into something that can be thought about in a rational way is a lot more useful than just actually just just sticking with that uh, you know anxious process yeah and, and also and, you know, we talked about partners here as well you know talking to your partner and uh, I realise not everybody's in this situation, and I read a stat the other day that one in five people with this condition uh, live alone, you know, and um, I was like that for, for a period, and uh, it can be quite challenging, but if you are fortunate to have a partner or a loved one or people people around you, you, know, you use them, and uh, I find people with Parkinson's often, we, we're, we're a bit reluctant, we don't want to share the burden, but... Uh, you know, sharing is caring, and um, that's very much the case in, in Parkinson's. 
And absolutely, and you would want them to share with you. You know, that's what being a partner is all about. And um, you know, I think absolutely. And um, a lot of people that I speak to on the phone uh, don't necessarily have a partner, but they might have other forms of support. You know, like a really close family member or a friend. But for those that don't have that, then I would always recommend, you know, maybe a counsellor for for if you're feeling low. Because, as I said, you know, um, the NHS sort of mostly delivers six sessions of CBT but if you can find a counsellor maybe a low-cost counsellor close to you that you can speak to as and when you need it provides that sort of support that that sort of support that sort of um, feeling of not being alone whilst facing a really tough set of challenges. And how do you find a counsellor is that through your GP? So sometimes yeah um, sometimes you know you can go on to websites of people of um of, of registered psychologists so there's um the BACP website I think it's BACP.co.uk which is um I think it's the British Association of Counseling Psychologists or Counseling and Psychotherapy and that's the one you could put in your location it'll bring up people exactly yeah. exactly and then it's sort of like internet dating you just look for you know the, 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 person, that, Dave? <laughs> the person that you might he's, match he's typing it in as you speak <laughs> But, you know, yeah, I think, you know, with any sort of counselling or thing like that, it's the relationship. It's like how well you connect with that person. And, if, you know, if, if you don't connect, I always say just move on to the next person, next try another counsellor, because you have to feel confident or, or you have to feel able to talk about the most innermost thoughts with someone. So if it's not working, it's not working, just like any relationship. In your career so far, you must have had quite a few success stories. What, what are the, the keys to, to living a good life with Parkinson's as far as you're concerned? I've just been so inspired by some people's stories of, um, you know, I, there was a woman, I, I went to an event in Scotland and a woman there who was turning 50 and she, with Parkinson's and she had done an enormous amount of exercise. She described herself as a couch potato and, you know, pre-Parkinson's. And then post-Parkinson, she had just transformed herself into this sort of exercise guru, had like, you know, um, sort of cycled around Scotland and just done an incredible number of um, challenges and raised so much money. And I just thought, like... Her, and she describes, you know, the gift, you know, of, of getting Parkinson's mm-hmm. somewhere. I think it's something that we were talking about before that Parkinson's can give and it takes away, but it does give. It can it can enable you to sort of think about living your life in a whole new way and re reformulating your um, priorities in life. It really focuses on the mind, actually. Parkinson's. I, I do a couple of big walks. I walk coast to coast wow. across England, hundred ninety two miles, uh, from from St Bees on the Cumbrian coast to. To Robin Hood's Bound, the Yorkshire coast. That's incredible. And, um, it, it was amazing. We raised, I've raised, raised over half a million pounds now for Parkinson's. Wow. So I'm very proud. That was one of the proudest things I've ever done. I walked the length of Hadrian's Wall as well and did the Dales Way. So I'm, I'm planning another walk soon. But um, it, it's amazing. If you've got focus in your life, Really, really can change things for you, and it's a win-win, right? Because you you benefit, and then also you know the money that you raise is incredible, big time. Yeah, I think as well. You think you're going to be really knackered and everything, but as as, as you walk, carry on walking. It took 13 days to walk coast to coast, and I felt healthier every day because yeah. the exercise was you know I was, I was feeling great, and some days I was pretty knackered, but you know it just every day I felt fitter and stronger. So mm. by the end of it, I was in great shape. Yeah. Better than when I started. That theme of giving back. Um, that's part of the process, isn't it? It's part of the acceptance process. Yeah, I think so. You know, a lot of people, when they first get diagnosed, they don't want to even hear the word Parkinson's, you know, never mind sort of raise money or anything like that. But I think, you know, as you become more um, confident in managing the condition, you know, and sort of understanding of what it entails, then people can start to think about what what you can do in order to sort of, um, yeah, manage 
manage things more effectively and feel better about it. And I think one of those things can sometimes be giving back, volunteering, getting more engaged with um, local communities or, or Parkinson's UK or charities like that. Give us a lot of food for thought. Thanks for joining us. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Thank you. A fascinating insight into the world of neuropsychology there from Dr Jennifer Foley. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear her angle. And, uh, you know, obviously very down to earth, as, as, you, as you heard there. None of that white coat syndrome. And uh, just like having a chat with a sort of well-informed friend almost. And uh, But the difference is, you know, it's as great as it is to have a buddy, you know, particularly a Parkinson's buddy, it's no substitute for professional help you know as you had as you heard from there that there's a lot to it and uh, if you haven't got access to these services yet you know uh, try and get referred people talk about the, the motor symptoms for parkinson's it just shows you how much is is psychological as well and, and, and more than more than just most symptoms yeah more more than what you can what you can see uh, that's what i always say there's so much under the surface we're all dealing with it and we, we need help uh, quite quite frankly uh, not just the medication Talking therapy, I find really helps, and uh, I'd recommend it to anybody. I have to come clean here. I'm married to a, a, a doctor of clinical psychology, Carolyn. So it's, I, I'm a case study. Yeah. What does she say about you? I'm just not a lot. She doesn't really speak to me now. <laughs> You're a lost cause. Yeah, exactly. I'm a lost cause. Yeah. No, she's brilliant. You know, any yeah. any problems I have, I can chat to Kaz. Oh, that's that's really that's important. Awesome. Really good. All right, it's that time. Show's nearly at an end. It's time for this. People with Parkinson's do amazing things. People with Parkinson's do amazing things, and one man doing amazing things is kind-hearted ex-BBC journalist, fellow Parky, Rory Kettlin-Jones, and his rescue dog, Sophie, have become internet sensations. The dog from Romania was so traumatised when she arrived at her new home, she wouldn't move from behind the sofa. I'm delighted to say Sophie is settling in nicely, loves nothing more than sausage and bacon treats. Rory's doing well as well. He likes the same. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very cute story. Maybe you should start one Ruby of Yorkshire as well. Yeah, exactly. Another person with Parkinson's doing amazing things is Larry Gifford. Larry's podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, is excellent, well worth a listen. Larry's working tirelessly to promote Parkinson's awareness. He also helped set up PD Avengers, a global alliance of people determined to end this chronic condition. So why don't you check out his podcast, put it on your favourites list, and also become a PD Avenger. We'll show you how in our show notes. Yeah, Larry is just superhuman. What he does for the Parkinson's community is just absolutely unbelievable. Finally, to a psychiatrist with Parkinson's, who's starring in the new Netflix documentary, Stutz. Dr Phil Stutz has helped people all over the world improve their mental health. One of his patients just happens to be the actor Jonah Hill, who wants to bring Stutz's magic and his life-altering tools to the world in the form of an unconventional new documentary. Stutz is a must-watch. It's on Netflix now. That's great. Yeah, you recommend it. I haven't got around to watching it yet. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to Michael J. Fox's uh, new biopic, which is out this month as well. That should be a good watch as well. Should be great. Next time we're on the podcast, we're going to talk about travel and how to travel well with Parkinson's. Because a lot of people are frightened to travel when they've got Parkinson's. Yeah, it's, it's quite daunting. And uh, this, was, this is my first big trip uh, for, for quite some time. And uh, we were comparing notes after getting back. And uh, we said, let's, let's do an episode on this because the whole experience uh, particularly with long-haul flights and at the airport experience and it's it's it, there's so much to it and it can be quite traumatic um, for, for the best people at the best of times but when you've got Parkinson's it, there's that added dynamic but you know we came up with a few tips and a few hacks that we'd like to share with you and uh, invite you to share your little tips as well go to our website drop us a message It'd be great to hear from you maybe you could star in the next episode of two parks in a pod we'll see you next time see you next time